0: Place it comfortably. So good morning everyone. The title of this talk today, The Heart Sutra and Beginner's Mind. A little background on both of those. Um as many of as many of you would know, there was a, a classic thin book written probably in the nineteen seventies, I think by Suzuki Roshi of the Zen Center of San Francisco, who was a much beloved um, uh, Japanese teacher, uh, very much loved by everyone, and um, recognized for his kind of um, simple, um, direct way of being in the world and his teaching. And his book, Zen, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Became a very, very popular book. And that term, beginner's mind, has become a term which is used even beyond Zen, you know, in, in all kinds of fields, science, mindfulness, etc., as a, an, an admirable frame of mind to have in the world. And just to clarify the title, it's not saying Zen mind, um, at the Zen mind over here which is some kind of wise mind, and then there's beginner's mind. My, my reading of it is Zen mind is beginner's mind. Uh-huh. Not that they're separate, but they're the one and the same thing. And um, so the mind of Zen is kind of like a child's mind, you know, that it's not caught in fixed opinions or knowing things, just a sort of innocence of seeing things as they are. And as he described... Beginner's mind in his book is that in the in the mind of the beginner there are many possibilities, in the mind of the expert there are few, so it's going from openness to narrowness. Now, what's this got to do with the Heart Sutra? Um, well, Zen is based the Zen teachings are very much based the Buddhist teachings, and the Heart Sutra is very central to Zen training. That's why we recite it as much as what we do. And it's interesting looking at the background um, of the Heart Sutra, um, particularly according to um, Red Pine, that's his literary name, Um, Bill someone it is, but Red Pine, um, who's a, a Buddhist scholar, a Zen practitioner who's done a lot of research. He's got a very good book in our library called the Heart Sutra and um, it's um, considered by many people in the Zen world to be a really a really good book. It's an academic book, um, but it, it shines a light on um, our understanding of the Heart Sutra within Buddhism. Um, what Red Pine is saying is that um, the Heart Sutra was written by someone, we don't know who wrote it, but someone with obviously a very Deep understanding of Dharma practice and meditation. And it was written as a counter to the Abhidharma. You know, now, the Abhidharma is um, a philosophy, so it's kind of like uh, Dharma analysis. Like if think of psychoanalysis, of analyzing why we human beings act the way they do, and so on then the Abhidharma is a very analytical understanding of all of the factors that lead to our suffering in life and our not perceiving reality correctly. And uh, and so it has these, it's a collection of different factors that come together. It's like a matrix of factors that come together to explain human behavior from a Buddhist point of view. Well, the Heart Sutra comes along and says that all of those different categories in the Abhidharma are all empty of substance. Right? In, in other words, it's kind of saying the Abhidharma is an analytical, conceptual idea of what life is. And what the Buddha experienced and what this monk is emphasizing is really is what is at the true essence of dharma practice is not abstract thinking and not getting fixated in abstract thinking and he says that the when you break down the the, the words prajna praj, it's prajna means before knowing is what it means prajna before knowing and jhana which is a term you may have heard of in associated particularly with um, some forms of Buddhism is about knowing. Mm-hmm. So the Abhidharma is based on knowing but the Prajna, wisdom, heart, um, sutra, is before knowing. Uh, so before knowing and beginner's mind are kind of almost synonymous concepts and this was the, the genius of Suzuki Roshi that he understood Buddhism and Zen so much from his monastic Japanese background. And he put it in a few simple words that everyday people could understand. Beginner's mind, beginner's mind. Um, Now, as a way of understanding what we mean by emptiness, which is the core Term that's used through the Heart Sutra. Um, sometimes it's better described in stories or anecdotes, which is what koans are. And there's one, there's one story where um, uh, one assumed senior student, you know, who'd been practicing for a while, um, stated his insight to his teacher. And he said to him, It's like a donkey staring at a well. Uh, so pre-knowledge, not not knowing, you know, no abstract ideas, just like a donkey looking at a well. And the, the teacher's always playful around these stories. You know, it's a lot of people think that Koans are really deadly serious, but they're actually about play and playing with words and having fun. So one one senior student says it's like a donkey staring at a well. And the teacher says, well, that's about three quarters of it. It's like a well staring at a donkey. <laughs> and um, there's also the well-known story of um, uh, Bodhidharma and searching for mind. And Bodhidharma is the, the first founder of Zen in China. And one of his students, disciples, comes to him and says, You know, I have a restless mind, can you put my mind at peace for me? And Bodhidharma says, well then bring me your mind, and I'll put it at peace for you. And then the student says, I've been searching for my mind for years and years, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, I'll put it to peace for you. All this searching, searching, searching everywhere, analysing, trying to find something. This, is, this, this statement I was just reflecting when I was putting this talk together in there, this statement of Bodhisattva for searching for the mind has enormous implications for mental health these days, where people are searching for the answers for their depression or their anxiety, whatever. And it's this actual division between what's wrong with me and how can I find the answer and the division of the mind into searching and finding answers just creates more disturbance in the mind. Mm -hmm. And if people could see, in a sense, that the the dividing of the mind into searching and answers in the first place is the problem, and stopped searching for their mind because it's here everywhere, we'd have a totally different take on mental health. Very different take. As a way of understanding what emptiness is too, um, people get into very elaborate sort of PhD theses on the meanings of words, etc., etc., which my eyes glaze over when I start to read that stuff. But um, a great teacher like Thich Nhat Hanh, Zen teacher, put it in very simple terms, is that when something's, when we use the word emptiness, in Zen or Buddhism, we're, in a sense, saying that everything is empty of separateness. So everything is just one whole, right? Um, If you go out into the countryside and you see a mountain, like there's a mountain there, there's a mountain. There's a saying in Zen, first there's a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is a mountain. Mm -hmm. So there is a mountain, that shape there, but when you stand back from the whole thing, a mountain is not something that's separate from the landscape. Right? There's valleys and streams and valleys and clouds and skies. It's not actually it's not something which endures and has some fixed separate identity. It's merged into the whole of nature. So it has no separateness. So it's kind of like it's saying, yes it's there. It's that distinct landform but it's not separate from everything else. And yes, it's a mountain, right? You can climb that mountain. So emptiness is form, you know. Um, Separateness is, is everything. Everything is separateness. These are words we can use interchangeably to try and understand it. But nevertheless, that's all very fine, but in everyday life, if you just went round in your Career or your family, whatever. With a don't-know mind that makes no judgments and has no opinions, would well, you be in all sorts of trouble, wouldn't you? We have to act in the world. We have to make judgments in the world, and those judgments need to be based on opinions. Simple things, you know. If you just think of like politics, you know, a year or two ago, whenever it was, we were all um, asked to vote on on um same-sex marriage or not or recently on on the voice right and people have different opinions about it so um, i suppose you can have no opinion and not vote but at the end of the day you weigh it all up and you go yes or no right so we need to have opinions and judgments in the world in order to engage but the problem is with, with so many um people by like particularly around political issues or but just family issues and so on is fixed opinions. Do you know, is it's attaching to our opinion and assuming that it's right. Do you know, and it's based on knowledge and it's true. And it's the fixation to the to the opinion um, creates division and separateness. <coughs> and even even in do you know larger issues like you know the the very distressing wars, do you know, we're experiencing, people are experiencing the world right now. My hunch is um, the majority of people in these various countries don't just want to live simple lives, just want enough food on the table and have a bit of fun and bring their kids up. Um, but people who get into power and are fixated on opinions and ide- ideology create these huge divisions do you know and then they instill fear into people do you know that we must go to war or whatever that's how wars between people start and it's how wars between nations start as people become so fixated on their on their opinions but if we all dwelt in don't know mind in beginner's mind then we would see that nothing's really separate in the first place and then there would be cooperation rather than rather than war. In contemporary psychology um there's a parallel here it's not quite the same but um you know the term IQ of course which means intelligent quotient which measures our cognitive intelligence. It doesn't measure our emotional intelligence or moral intelligence, but it measures our cognitive intelligence. And it's based on how well we use abstract thinking. And some people academically are very good at abstract thinking, but they have no common sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people have common sense, but not much abstract thinking. And what is a term that's used today in psychology is agile thinking. So agile thinking is being able to um, be in the concrete and then shift to the abstract, you know, and be in the abstract and shift to the concrete and move between things. And when different information comes up, then instead of staying with your fixed view, you, you shift. And this is, how, this is what good, basically, science is based on as well. Scientists are kind of don't-know-mind. It's not like religion, well, this is the truth. Oh, don't-know-mind. Let's be curious about this, see, see how this works, whatever. And, and it's don't-know-mind which takes science forward. Uh, but then people get into scientific dogmatism. Oh, yeah, this must be right. This is true. Um, we'll fixate on that and we won't have any more curiosity. This must be the way it is. Mm-hmm. It's not the true spirit of science. That beginner's mind don't know mind um, is the true the true spirit of it. Why do we get fixated on opinions and points of view as human beings? Basically it's because we want to predict the future. Mm-hmm. We're, pre- we're pre- Future predicting machines, and if we can't predict the future, we get anxious. Right? So if we have a, f- we 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 want certainty, right? And if our views and so on can give us certainty, then we think we're we're safe going forward in the future. But it's a false refuge. Right? It's brittle, you know. Um, it creates more anxiety. And, and and what true resilience would be would be I don't know what the future holds. It tends to be predictable in certain kind of ways, but I don't know whether I might go to the doctor tomorrow and he diagnoses me with cancer and I've got three months to live. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, resilience comes out of not knowing. Resilience doesn't come out of fixed views and concepts about um, our view of life. Carrying, uh, it's all... So it's. We need to have opinions and we need to have judgment. but what we really need to do is is to carry them lightly that's that's what comes out of thin practice. Um, R. H. Blythe, who was one of uh, Robert Aitken's a uh, teacher who wrote many wonderful books, poetic kind of books on Zen. Um, he has a chapter called Abstract Thinking and Concrete Thinking. And he said that Zen is basically in the, in the real world of action, it's, it, it, concrete thinking is everything. And and he said that Zen really doesn't have a negative view of anything, but it said, beware of abstractions. But as soon as we are in abstractions and we start believing in abstractions um, like communism, capitalism, etc., etc., then by fixating on those abstractions, we create a whole lot of suffering for ourselves and others in the world. So then it's about, and Cohen's study, you know, it's about getting out of abstraction into what is right before you, right now in the, in this world, right now, before you go into thinking, it's Cohen's study arises out of the Heart Sutra. Mm-hmm. It's an application. It's a teaching that that arises out of that sutra. A couple of quotes to end with, um, and I'm paraphrasing T.S. Eliot here but he said something along the lines that the, the result of all of our searching is to arrive at the place where we first started and to know it for the first time. Mm-hmm. So that could easily apply to Zen practice. And finally, another great Zen koan and statement, uh, not knowing, is most intimate.